Welcome to the HR on the Offensive podcast, brought to you by Lace Partners. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to the latest HR on the Offensive podcast. It's me, Chris Howard from Lace Partners. Once again, thank you very much for joining us. We are delighted that you could join us. And today, uh, I've got a second partner in crime. It's, if it's not Emily Onis, it's of course going to be Max Bailey. Max, back in the virtual studio. How are you doing, mate? You all right? Um, loving it, Chris. Loving it. Um, I am looking forward to getting into the studio in person soon, yes. actually, with lockdown raising. But um, yes, another one done virtually. That'd be nice. Do you know what I'd like? I'd like to do a podcast with a couple of beverages, a beer or two. That's my utopia at the moment, because at the moment it's just been sat at home over teams and uh, looking out the window and seeing the rain constantly come down. So it'll be nice when we get a bit of a, a bit of beer and a bit of a banter going in person, won't it? Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to that, Chris. Yes. And today we've got a bit of a book review. It's book club time today. So we've got Barry Green, who is from Continuum Consulting, and he's written, they've co-authored a book with a chap called Jason Foster, who's chief executive of an organization called Sinazur, uh, which is a global data analytics business. But I wanted to get, or Max and I wanted to get Barry on uh, just to talk a bit about his book, because it's it's a very interesting, uh, it's certainly an interesting and thought-provoking title. It's called Data means business. Level up your organization to adapt, evolve, and scale in an ever-changing world. Barry, thank you very much for joining us on today's podcast. Yeah, no worries. So, do, do, um, do we need to warn everyone that Barry's also a Kiwi, Chris, perhaps? <laughs> I don't think anyone needs warning of that. If they know Lace Partners and the Lace Partners team, you know that we love Kiwis. We've got plenty of them, haven't we? <laughs> we do indeed. We do. I think I was K9. Yes. Nine, as it's often referred to. Yes, number nine within the business, number nine within the business. Uh, I'm, I'm the number one Kiwi, so Ooh. next at nine probably makes sense here. <laughs> I, I like it. And Barry, could you just give us, before we talk about the book, could you just give us a bit of your background and your kind of area of speciality, if that's all right? Yeah, sure. Um, I had a, a reasonably long career, 30 years in financial services, a couple of years consulting. And in that time, I've done pretty much everything i've been in sales i've been i've done lots and lots of change projects i implemented global hr platform that's where i met max global finance platform i mean i've done lots of big global projects lots of change work but i've also actually worked in the business you know making money and um and kind of understanding how things worked across an organization and that's and basically what happened is when i was at hsbc i got an opportunity to uh look at data i was in hr uh, and they were just starting to get a CDO community together. And effectively, um, they wanted someone to be nominated as an HR CDO. I was the kind of COO, if you like, at the time. And so I kind of had finance, I had reporting, what else did I have, procurement. Um, and I and I sort of said, well, okay, well, it kind of makes sense for me to pick up data as well. So I got together with four or five other people, and we basically created kind of the first CDO structure at HSBC. And what I kind of realized was that all throughout my career, I'd solved problems using process and data. And actually there were people who were kind of career data people and I could kind of hold my own. And so I kind of, and I really liked the whole CDO space because it was pretty new um, and I loved solving problems. Um, and it just seemed quite, it's where I decided I wanted to go um, in my career. And so basically for the last 
seven years. I've been an interim CDO um, going into organisations, helping them uh, sort, sort their data out. But over that time, I've also kind of developed my own approach in terms of how you kind of look at data and how you kind of solve that problem. But Barry, I, I, I do remember that HCM implementation many years ago. Actually, that must golly, that must be nearly 20 years ago now. But um, It can't be. I'm only 24. Well, that is true. That is clearly true. That with a career lasting thirty years and only twenty-four years old, so clearly, yeah. clearly, very, very. Interesting. <laughs> so, so what was the so what was the what was the reason for taking it from sort of a, a professional activity, you know, what you're getting paid to go to work for, to actually turning it into a book? Okay. Um. Okay, I guess so, so. There's two things I. One thing I really like about the data space is collaboration. So people actually, you know, in this space are quite keen to share. Everyone's kind of happy to, to, to kind of um, talk about the good things and also the bad things. What I don't like about data is it's just too much hype and there's too much, you know, too much language around data. Um, and a lot of people don't understand it. And kind of, it's a bit like maths. People are kind of scared of data, right? You, know, you mention the word data and everyone kind of looks around. And I think one of the reasons for that is because data is almost esoteric and that, you know, if you if I was to ask you to describe data, it could mean a million different things. And it could be, you know, all the data in your organization on your phones and spreadsheets all over the place. So it's kind of quite big. And what we wanted to do was effectively start taking the language and the approach and putting it in simple simple English. And the reason for that is because, you know, the business sponsors are the ones who are going to they're going to give you the money, but they're also the ones who are responsible for data. So I also think that over time, um, the business has abdicated responsibility and handed that responsibility off to IT and then complained when the IT haven't done what they've done. You know, um, IT is good at doing IT stuff. Then they're not, in my view, then they're not data people. Yeah, and, and Barry, I completely agree. And in my mind, I always separate data from IT. I mean, if you even just think of if if the cloud systems out there, you know, if you go back a generation or so, sure they were on premise, but we always referred to them as information processing systems back in the day, right? They were there to push the data around, to transform the data, to you know, to update the order, to update someone's personal record, etc. But ultimately they were they were a machine or a mechanism for altering the data. And you know, with all the latest generations of product, be that cloud or or what have you, you know, yes the the tools are a lot slicker, the experience is a lot better, you've got digital as a channel on your mobile, et cetera, but ultimately the IT part of it is really there just to modify and, and process the data, right? Yeah, yeah, and I, I think um, and it's quite interesting because when I kind of go into an organisation, the first thing I say, they say, tell me, you know, you're a data guy. I said, okay, let's not talk about data for a bit. Let's talk about process. Tell me about what your key processes are. Let's tell me about what's broken about those processes. And they, and they kind of look at me a bit weird and say, but, you know, you're, you're a data guy. I go, yeah, yeah, but what creates a pro, um, what creates data? A process creates data. A process gives data context. And so if you're going to look at your, you know, organisation with lots and lots of data, you need to kind of start focusing somewhere quite quickly. You can't look at all the data and try and fix it all and, and you know, define it all, et cetera. So what you need is some, you know, critical data. And the, and the way you define something that's critical is through a process. And the other thing I like about that is that, um, People understand what they do and how, and generally, 
it's to some degree where that fits in a process. And so you can talk to them in their language about something they understand, and you can finally, when you start bringing up the data piece, they've got a whole lot of context, and then it starts to become more relevant for them. Yeah, absolutely. And and I must say, every time I'm talking to an HRD or a CPO or one of the, the COE leads, the consistent thing that comes out as one of their pain points is data, which we we often see as well as linked back to a process that's broken or perhaps where an integration doesn't exist. The IT folk tend to always come at it from a what do I need to build perspective, whereas the, you know, the business always comes at it from a what data do I need to support my process or to make a key decision. Yeah, and then you should look at your process and start to think about what you need from that from that process you might you never get the data regardless of what sort of systems you put in place, right? Because you and that's why I think a lot of these a lot of system implementations fail because they start with a the system, they don't start with the process and the data. And then once you've done that piece of work, you can go, right, so now I kind of know what I need out of that system. I've kind of almost done some functional requirements. And now I can start asking the vendors if they do these things and if I can get, you know, get this data. And that's where I think a lot of pro- a lot of problems start in organizations. Yeah, absolutely. I, I could I could name a few projects over the years that I've I've heard of where, you know, they've rushed to move their existing broken data into a new system and that the hope that the the new system would somehow fix the data and, and they suddenly decide discover after much toil, sweat, tears, and, and potentially a large spend, they've still got the same broken data, but in a shiny new system. So investing up front on getting the data right, understanding those process hands off, how the data evolves through a process, I think is, is critical to, to getting to success with the stuff. Yeah. But um, one, one thing you talk about in your in your book is very much around the the behaviours that underpin a data culture. Maybe you could share a little bit of your thinking around that. Okay, I've got a thing. Uh, I've got an ownership approach, which is in the book, and for me, it's kind of fundamental. It's a, it's a real driver of culture change. So I see data as a way of connecting an organisation. So we talk about ecosystems a lot, right? You've got a data ecosystem. You've got ecosystems within effectively units, you know, business units or departments and things. Data helps you connect that. And the problem is, is if you need you need some way to to start that conversation, and ownership is a really good way to start it because again, you you look at the process, you understand where it flows, you understand kind of high level places where you assign ownership. That then, and I, when I say ownership, I mean real ownership. So when I'm kind of speaking, I've got this this kind of thing I say where I sort of talk to people and say, anyone who owns their own house, put your right hand up, and anyone who's got a mortgage, put your left hand up. And then I could say, look, everyone who's got two hands up is a liar because they don't own anything, right? They've got an equity stake in an asset. But it highlights the point that generally ownership doesn't mean anything. So, you know, how many times you've been in an organization where people say, he owns that, she owns this, and it doesn't mean anything. There's no boundary conditions. And, and basically, ownership is a really key way of starting to get that behavioral change in the organization. And a lot of a lot of people also, the only time they ever really engage with data is in a report or in a spreadsheet. And they don't understand that actually all the work takes place before that they get that data. And, and again, it's about starting to, to make everyone in the organization understand, even at a high level, how the things work, but that everyone is in the organization is responsible for data and they understand it through understanding their place and the process and what data flows through that process. And so th- those things start to kind of get the organization thinking differently. And eventually, once you start putting proper ownership in place, recording it, attesting that process is fit for purpose, data is fit for purpose, 
you start to embed a different culture and, and a different way of thinking in an organization. It takes time. And the other thing I'm, I've got is I've almost got like a, a kind of standard video storyboard I use now, um, which kind of talks about data as a supermarket. You go into the supermarket and everything's well labelled and et cetera, et cetera. What happens if it wasn't well labelled? And what happens if, you know, data doesn't come in trucks, it comes in from a parachute and then the parachute kind of got Excel and Excel dropping down with all these files coming in into the into the process. Um so there's lots of ways you can you can effectively start to, to make that change, but it's a it's a long term change for an organization. Um and you know the other thing I kind of talk about when we put the tools in is talk about it's not about these tools aren't data tools. They're tools to connect the organization, to get the organization to understand how they transact. Um, and then they also, that means that once you start to do that, you start to connect up the organization to processes, systems, policy, et cetera. What happens is you can basically start re-engineering that organization, but when you do change, you can do it quicker. Because you know, if everyone has ever basically gone, done a big project, Max, like you know, we have a number of times, yeah. Functional analysis takes a long time because there's nothing's written down. And even if it is written down, it's two years old and it isn't kept up to date and there's no clear ownership in place. And so, you know, without these things in place, you can't change and wrap, you know, quickly. And, and the world's moving very fast. People want, everyone wants to be digital and effectively to be digital, you have to have clean process, understanding data, data flows, et cetera, et cetera. Does, yeah. that, does that kind of make sense, mate? Does, is that, have yeah. I explained that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I love the idea of putting the ownership for the data or A, being clear on, on the ownership for the data and also then putting the responsibility of keeping that data accurate or up to date as close to the owner as possible. I mean, for employee data, you can, you can typically separate it between what the employee truly owns and what they're responsible for maintaining via, say, some self-service versus what, you know, the HR or department or the line manager would own you know typically your personal details for example around name address phone number that has to be with your dependents etc has to be with the individual the things about like your job role who you report to salaries compensation plans all of that type of stuff really needs to be owned by, by hr and or the line manager um, so just getting that ownership and residency correct and understood and then giving people the tools to maintain the data and make sure it's accurate and up to date, I think is really important. Um, you also talk a bit in your book about creating cross-functional teams. Maybe talk a bit about that. And I, th I think, you know, the sort of the use case is more around taking that holistic view of data. So we typically come at it through a sort of a people data type lens, but from, from the work you're doing out, out in the market, Barry, you come at it from a much more comprehensive, wide, wide ranging view, I think. So just a couple of things, right? Um, the ownership model applies across the organization. So you shouldn't have ownership just for data. So you need to have ownership for process systems, everything, right? So that so the model's got to be consistent. Um, and I hate the term data governance, right? So anyone who knows me will know that I don't use the term data governance at all. And the, um, by, by basically what I do is with the ownership model, you tie, try it to the risk framework. So you put risk where it belongs and risk and you manage it through that normal your risk framework. Um, you make a really good point about um, HR data because a lot of people say, oh, that's HR data. Um, and I kind of got this, uh, I've got this analogy I could talk about, well, you know, salespeople really only care about sales. Um, finance people run the business and everyone kind of cares about finance, but only to a degree because, you know, that's how they, you know, that the company makes money and they're going to get paid. People data is underestimated or undervalued in an organization, and generally it's pretty poor, and, and HR people don't think broadly enough about what sort of things um, they should be using it for. So for me, you know, strategic workforce planning is a, is a really, really important 
thing that needs to be done in an organisation because the world's moving quickly, people need to upskill. So you kind of need to have that longer-term view. Um, and geography is kind of data that might sit in the master data management system. Now, by themselves, all those pieces of data are kind of interesting. But if you need to know how many products have been sold, by whom, at what margin, that all of a sudden starts to become a much more meaty piece of information that you can use to run your business. So uh, again, everyone kind of thinks about their data in silos and you need to start thinking more broadly. Now, one of the things I, um, I'm really keen on is sort of taking a finance hierarchy and throwing it in the HR platform so you can tie, you know, cost centers cost and everything to it. And, you know, then you kind of start to break down that old, you know, the old um, finance HR debate around, is it FTE or is it headcount, right? It can be either one, it doesn't matter. Let's make sure we know what they mean. But if you start bringing HR and finance together, then you start to, you know, show people there's a lot of power in kind of joining up these data sets. And again, it's kind of hopefully part of the cultural change that needs to happen. Can I just ask one question? How many, Barry, how many businesses that you've spoken to in doing the research for work and things like that actually get that right? Is it very, very few that actually have that had these cross-functional teams in place that are working or were there were there were you, were you surprised at the number was it lots was it about 50 50 what what sort of uh, ratio did you, did you have well so this is kind of this is interesting because i think everyone's trying to go agile and a lot of people have gone fragile instead right because i've implemented it badly um you know and max will tell you you know all those years ago we would we had cross-functional teams you know we would sit down with the technology people the business we'd all sit in a room we'd draw things up on a board um you know and, and that was kind of just the natural way we worked um somehow that got lost <laughs> and then you know, I, I kind of think agile is important but um most businesses are trying to do it, but they, but like most things, again, they see everything as like some sort of silver bullet. So if you've got to go fully agile, full, you know, scaled agile, it's the only way to operate, blah, 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 blah. It's not. You know, you've got to have a combination of you could have waterfall, you could have a bit of cross-functional teams, you know, a little bit of agile-esque. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to kind of solve the problem with the right method in everything you do. And too often what I see is organizations trying to do everything with one solution, thinking it's going to solve all their problems for them. So I'd say every organization's trying it, but you know, success is relatively low from what I've seen and you know, from all the conversations I've had with people. And I, I tell you what, the, the word agile is so often overused. It, it goes into the same category as digital for me. Everyone yeah. wants to be agile. Everyone wants or, to be digital. Or um, big data, right? Or big data even. Or big data. <laughs> Um, so you talk a lot about how you can potentially start small and scale quickly with with these sorts of data problems. Maybe talk to us a little bit about about your approach there. Yeah. So um, again, you know, I think a lot of people have seen data governance programs put in place where you know they, they we're going to buy a data governance tool. We're going to it's called a business glossary, and we're going to define everything in the organisation and blah blah blah. Well, so so just think about it for a second. What does a business glossary do? It kind of gives you some definitions for some key terms. By itself, it's next to useless, right? It doesn't really add that much value. When you start putting it into process and you have ownership and you have all these other things and you, and you can effectively, you can look at a problem and then say, right, so what we need to do is define some key terms for some key data. And effectively what you do is you start joining all these things up and then you effectively say, right, so this did or didn't work in our organization. How do we do it better next time? And effectively then you might say, when are we going to buy some tools to put all this stuff in and make sure that we can, you know, attest that things are up to date, all those kind of good things. 
get people to go online and see what things mean, start people going in and kind of adding to things, you know, tagging things and doing all sorts of stuff like that. So, so their context is going into the platform. You probably don't want to go and spend all that money up front. So the idea is that, you know, do minimal, minimal viable products. So create something that's just good enough to prove to people that actually they want more. So it's almost about kind of creating that, that hunger um, or that desire to say, well, well, that was pretty cool, but, you know, how do we get more of that? And then effectively what you need to do is not only think about building it small so you can scale it, but you need to think about all the different components that you need in a, in a, um, to manage data. Because it's not just about a business glossary or a data dictionary. You've got to have, think about all the components and when they might hit and when you might need them. And then you start then you start running these MVPs to kind of get these things in place. So as you start to scale and you need something else, some other capability, you've already done an MVP for that and you know how to put it in place. What a lot of people do, so master data is the classic. We need a master, we need to master our data. No data data management in place. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, master data is a pretty beefy thing by itself. You don't have data management in place, it becomes too beefy and too big to and almost is too big to fail. No, it's too it fails because it's too big. And so it's all about basically putting in place the right capabilities, understanding when you might need them, running the MPVs so that you effectively have these things in place ready to scale, so that when you do want to basically go across the organization, everything's in place. Yeah, and I guess I guess taking that minimum viable product approach, that MVP approach, um, Barry, means that you're able to experiment with new things, see what works, rapidly iterate, and and where things aren't working, alter your approach before before biting off the big implementation. So getting it right small, and then allowing you, yourself to scale it. So minimizing the upfront effort and investment until you've proven that it's going to work, at least on your on your use cases, and then scale selectively. Okay. Yeah. Um, There's a huge number of, of positive comments on the book, and it's exa exactly this sort of advice, I think, that's generated a lot of those positive comments, that it's very practical advice. You don't talk just about data science, analytics, AI, it's or machine learning. It's all about how to actually bring this to life in the context of an organization. Was that really one of the things you wanted to bring out as, as part of the book, that real-world experience? Yeah, but again, it's also about the hype, right? So AI, a lot of people talk about, oh, we you know, want to do some machine learning, we want to write some algorithms, and we're going to solve the problems of the world. There's my silver bullet. The data is in such a state that the people who are writing, you know, these um, algorithms can't get the data they need. The data is so bad that they spend 90% of their time cleaning the data up. And then once they've basically written the algorithm, they prove it works, they can't productionize it. So that's kind of what I was just talking about, right? You need, so it's about knowing what capabilities you need. So before you start doing all this machine learning and, uh, and AI stuff, you might run a little MVP on the site and, you know, get one data scientist or two, whatever budget you've got, try things out, and then come out and say, hey, these are all the issues. These are all the things we need to put in place. Slowly build those over time as you're building your data management and your other core capabilities that you're putting in place. And then eventually, you, you know, when you want to scale it, you're ready. And for me, a lot of people, are, you know, AI is a classic example. So you kind of, it might be called sexy, but the problem is, is that just good reporting can give you so much value, right? Having, you know, a, a lean warehouse with all the right dimensions and hierarchies and um, measures, et cetera. And basically, you know, like the example I talked about, you know, how many products have you sold at what margin in what area, who's the line manager, you know, blah, blah, blah. 
you're not going to do that for AI. You're going to do that for a really solidly built reporting platform. Um, and that might be the first thing you want to do before you start kind of getting into all the sexy, heavy stuff. Yeah, I must I must say um, I did I did quite a bit of machine learning in the early 90s, back back before it was before it was cool. And the, the biggest challenge back in, back in the good old days, as we often refer to them, was getting the data structured and codified in a way that you could actually put it into the algorithms, put it into the tools, whether it was fuzzy logic, whether it was neural networks. The biggest challenge was really about getting the data correct or structured in a way that the, the tools could digest them. And I, I think that's as true today as it, as it was back then, as, you, as you've just been describing. I, I think Mr. Mr. Howard may have a question. Yeah, I think we're just coming towards the end of today's uh, podcast. And Barry, it's been really, really fascinating to get your insights. I particularly echo what Max um, was saying about uh, and what some people have said in, in the comments on the, uh, the book, which you can get from uh, Amazon if you just search data means business, you can find it around the, the kind of the practical advice and guidance. That really does seem to be something that, that has underpinned the success of the book so far. I guess my really sort of final question more than anything else is if you could, our listeners obviously um, might not have read the book just yet if you could leave them with one overarching sort of takeaway or question to ask themselves but one key takeaway that, that they should take from uh, from the book or, or or that you'd like them to get from the book what would that be are they ready to change because data is all about change and if you're not ready then you, you know you need to kind of think seriously about whether you want to put the investment in and in, in, in the organization and you know it's it's really it's about change so, so are you ready to change really ready to change because change is uncomfortable yeah no that's a really really good endpoint actually um and barry thank you very very much for joining us on today's podcast no worries i really enjoyed it and max uh, as always partner in crime good to have you on uh firing the questions at uh, our lovely guest today Always a pleasure, Chris. And 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 Barry, I hope you found the I hope hope you found the experience enjoyable and interesting. Yeah, no, I'm just waiting for my um chicken dinner mix. <laughs> Cool. Okay. Well, thank you very much for listening. Um, we hope you enjoyed the podcast. We will be back uh, next week with another great podcast. We've got a lot of really, really interesting content that we are just uh, queuing up at the moment on a variety of different topics, such as hybrid working. Um, and we're looking at um, Max and I've recently just done one on uh, the changing evolution of the uh, the SI. So uh, listen in and hope you enjoyed it. And we will see you next time on the HR on the Offensive podcast. Bye-bye.